everybody. Welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I love what I do. I hope you guys are having a great day. I'm so blessed to be able to interview these people, learn from these geniuses and literal superheroes of body and mind. And I'm so excited to bring you today's guest. This gentleman lives in Tampa Bay, works at the University of South Florida, and is an absolute wealth of information when it comes to optimizing body composition. He's the guy doing the research in the lab around what actually works. We're doing clinical data, clinical research on a day-to-day basis at the University in Tampa. So it's so awesome to see and be able to pick this man's brain about what he sees objectively in the lab. Dr. Bill Campbell joins me today to talk about his amazing research on diet breaks, is diving into hormonal effects of dieting and understanding really what we should be doing and why so much knowledge, so much wealth of information here. So grateful for Dr. Campbell being here in my facility. If you guys aren't already following him on social media, he does really, really great posts literally about daily asking questions, breaking myths, and overcoming obstacles in this fitness industry. There's so much misinformation out there. I'm incredibly grateful for Dr. Campbell and what he does and everyone in his lab for investing your time and your life in helping us understand this metabolic process that exists, right? This idea of losing fat. What does it actually look like? What are the things that go into losing fat? Most people are so myopically focused on a calorie deficit that they're just missing the big picture, right? And that's kind of the human uh, nature, it seems, is we want to focus on the thing that's right in front of our nose and tend to miss the forest for the trees. So Dr. Campbell gives us a lot of great insights into what works, what doesn't, and hopefully you guys will take this information and apply it into your arsenal and allow you to be lean, healthy, and muscular. Enjoy the conversation with Dr. Bill Campbell. This podcast is brought to you by our amazing friends at Chili Pad. I love this thing. I had it on last night. I had it on its lowest setting. I also dug into the app a little bit this week and played around with being able to turn up the volume and turn down the volume. So they've included a feature that allows you to make the machine function on silent. Or if you are someone who's into white noise, you can turn it on and actually experience some white noise while you're doing your sleep time. It's been a great experience for me to really see how well it influences my deep sleep. Definitely have seen about a 10 to 20% increase in deep sleep. So massive fan of Chili Pad. I actually use the Uller. I've got a king size Uller in my house and it's certainly a, an investment worth making if you're someone who gets hot, if you're someone who has a hard time getting deep sleep. So we know after listening to some of the guests that heat and body temperature is a big, big signal inside the body to ultimately tell your body whether it should be awake or asleep. And to get deep sleep, we need to be in this cold state. We're meant to be potentially, arguably, sleeping in a cave, sleeping outdoors, and your body's meant to get this really low body temperature in the night that allows you to the body to undergo all of its necessary detox processes and healing processes. And if you stay hot, apparently your body won't shut down and won't go into deep sleep. And that's super important to know. And we all know that we've had sweaty nights one night, whether it be dreaming or having too much food that kicks up your metabolism and keeps you from getting into those really great, deep, recoverative sleep. So you wake up feeling amazing. You guys can head over to chilitechnology.com and pick up the Uller and the Chili Pad, both versions this code will work for. And it's absolutely something I suggest. And I know Ashley is a big fan. We both have been using the Uller and it's absolutely amazing. It can get down to in the 50s as far as degrees and temperature and get up to 115, which my son pleasantly surprised me with the other night when I woke up. <laughs> it was enjoyable to say the least, you know, burning. But if you like getting warm, if you like getting hot, if it's cold and where you live, it's a good idea to have this thing warm you up in the morning. 
So head over to chilitechnology.com, use the code MUSCLE to get you a great discount on your purchase of the Uller. Have an awesome day, guys. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Bill Cameron. What's up, everybody? We're sitting here with Dr. Bill Campbell from USF, the world's only, we believe, physique enhancement lab, which is pretty awesome, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for being here, man. Super excited. I've been studying your stuff for a long time, following you for a while. And man, we're in the same city and we've never got a chance to coordinate. So I'm very glad for you to, to make your way down. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thank you. So we're just talking before starting about this physique enhancement lab and your, and your new focus or your primary focus being accelerating fat loss in females. And I think that's a super hot topic and everybody wants to talk about what should fat loss look like? And I think you've got a really interesting approach with this kind of diet break approach. And I don't know that everyone here has heard about that. I think that's a relatively new concept and I've been implementing it thanks to you, honestly, in the last six months with all of my female clients is we'll, ah, we'll okay. do, yeah. So we'll either do a five, two, or sometimes we'll do a two week and then a five day, like depending who it is and how they feel they're like, they're responding. I feel if someone's having an easy time adhering with their diet, I'll let them stick with it. As soon as they feel like they're getting a little bit stressed, as soon as the HRV starts to go down and the sympathetics arousal starts to go up, we're just like, Hey, take five days off. Just can eat whatever you want. And again, give them a little bit of guidelines, but I'd love to hear your approach and, and tell us about how that study came about. Sure. Yeah. So let me go back three years just to set the stage for the kind of studies that we do. So I had a graduate student at the time. Her name was is Lauren Conlon, and we designed a flexible dieting study. And we that study had males and females. And basically, we were asking the question, is a flexible dieting better than, worse than, or no different than a rigid diet plan, like a, a meal plan where you're going to have to eat the same things every day? And we did that study, and essentially what we found was that there was no difference between flexible dieting and meal so plans. Let's talk about that, because okay. I'm very curious about that. How long was the study? That was a 10-week study of dieting, and then we had them do whatever they wanted for 10 weeks. So it was a 20-week study, 10 weeks of dieting, 10 weeks of not dieting or doing whatever they wanted. And at the end of it? It seemed as though it was pretty much equated. So you equated for calories. Yes. But yes. at the end of it, I'll, I'll let you finish up. Yeah. So the one thing that was different between the groups during the diet phase, the 10 weeks of dieting, no differences. They both lost about six pounds of fat, eight total pounds. Um, they held onto their muscle mass generally. Their training, we asked them to not change their training at all. So that was one of the few studies where they didn't actually train in my physique lab. So they were kind of on their own with their training, but we're told, don't change what you're doing. What we found in the 10 weeks after the diet, the flexible dieting group significantly increased their muscle mass and the rigid diet group did not. Now, you're going to ask me like everybody does, well, why was that? And I'm going to say, I don't know. Let me tell you what it was not attributed to. They did not ingest more protein and they didn't have more time exercising. So I'd love to pick your brain on why. The only thing that we were able to come up with, and we didn't measure stress, but there is some research that students at finals time and with resistance training, if they have more stress, they're more catabolic. So our only theory is that the individuals in the flexible dieting group didn't have as much stress because they could choose the foods that they wanted. For sure. 
Did you equate for where the calories were coming from? So like fat versus carb, but the groups you said, just eat this many calories, don't care where they come from. Yeah. So what we did in that study, and we do this with all of our studies, we reduced their calories by 25%. And we said, you have to eat of that reduction, 1.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body mass. You have to get that. And then it really didn't matter between fat and carbs. We usually split that evenly, but we don't sweat the carbs and fat. So did you but notice protein it, was did you notice any swing from the non-controlled group to the dieting group? So like the, the flexible dieting group to the not flexible dieting group as far as what they chose for food? Did you did they report no, that to you? No, we only reported macros. So they did food logs, but we didn't analyze the types of foods. That'd be very, that, that would be a very curious thing for me to see. It would be like, did this group, the flexible dieting group, tend to choose more high fat foods or high sugar foods versus this group? Like, I'm very curious to see yes. how that would swing because logic would say if, if a group says the flexible dieting group happened to choose more sugar in their body, maybe was more used to using sugar metabolically, and they, get, they went into these phases where they were stressed and they continued to have sugar, sugar having that ability to kind of modulate cortisol and stress a little bit may have kept their yes. muscle mass on, but they, you just said they didn't have a rebound in fat, right? No, no. I mean, both groups gained, but little, they were yeah, similarly between the two groups, mm -hmm. which again, kind of makes sense. They were designed to have the same caloric reduction and then post diet, they were just told, do whatever you want. So we just, we followed up after 10 weeks. So that is interesting. And that is the one study where we have food records. So I could go back and look at the foods on that one since that study. Very interesting. Have you been considering following up with a subsequent study? And if so, what would that study be? Well, what we've done is that kind of set the philosophy for my lab that we're going to implement a flexible dieting culture in, in our research. Mm -hmm. How long was that study? 20 weeks. 20 weeks okay. total, but a 10-week dieting Got study. It. So what we've done since then was we followed that up with a what I deem as a diet refeed study. And utilizing flexible dieting principles, we had two groups in this study. This was also males and females. Before you finish that, could you just define flexible dieting? Is that just I can eat whatever I want as long as it fits in these macros? Yeah, that's the easiest yeah. way to define it. So as No restrictions at all. No restrictions, but the way that we do it is we do, we use what I call the protein anchoring yeah, concept. So sense. you have to have X amount of protein. Okay. Uh, most of our studies are about, we never let them go below 1.6. So somewhere between 1.6 and 1.8 is what we say, because we know that that maintains muscle mass during dieting and it maintains metabolic rate. So yes, other than that, they choose the food and they could even choose the protein, we give them whey protein post-workout. That's one thing that we standardize. So we followed that study up with a diet refeed study. And I'll define diet refeed the way that we used it in this study. It was one group dieted for seven weeks straight. This was a 25% reduction in calories every day for seven weeks. The other group, the diet refeed group, also dieted for seven weeks. But during Monday through Friday, we cut their calories, not 25%, but 35%. And then on the weekends, two days in a row, Saturday and Sunday, we increased their calories, all in the form of carbohydrates, back to maintenance levels. And maintenance levels was the calories they were eating prior to starting their diet. So that's not BMR. That's where they happen to be coming in. Exactly. Okay. Yes. Yes. So at the end of the week, both groups had an average of a 25% caloric reduction. The one group, again, because they had 
to increase for two days, we were more aggressive during the week. And what we found in that study was after the seven weeks, the diet refeed group, they were able to maintain their muscle mass significantly better than the group that didn't have these refeeds. They were also able to maintain their metabolic rate significantly better than the other group. And when I say significantly better, the non-refeed group actually met the statistical threshold for significance. They lost a significant amount of muscle mass. They lost a significant amount of metabolic rate. The other group that had these refeeds two days every week, they did not. And how about fat loss? Was that about equated? Fat loss was yeah very similar. It was usually about six to seven pounds in both groups. Now, the diet refeed group lost a little bit more fat, but not significantly different. Did you guys quantify the training at all or said, hey, go do whatever you would do? No. So that's reflective of everything that we do now. So they work out in my physique lab and we monitor every single set, every rep. They have to attend usually about 90% of all the workouts or, or they get withdrawn from the study. So it's a very controlled training environment. Everybody was on the same program. And that study was a, I believe that was, um, trying, we've done multiple studies. I think that was four days per week, two days of upper body, two days of lower body. Did you see any significant performance shifts group? group, group? We didn't measure performance in that study. Sometimes we do a performance measure, but not in that particular study. Yeah, I'd be very curious in that case to see like the group that was doing the refeeds. Were they seeing a performance benefit on the Monday and Tuesday with that like potential glycogen yes. uptake? Um, yeah. Yeah. So that may And we do have that work. training volume. And actually, we just finished entering that data and I have to analyze that. Very, very cool. Yeah. So much to be explored there, right? My brain always starts going looking for the, the variables. So we go, oh, that would be interesting to look at. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Very, very cool. Now, on that note, one thing that I force my team to do, I sacrifice a lot of other things. That, and I, I emphasize we're going to do simple designs mainly because I want to make sure that one, I can educate my students because it's very easy to start looking at five, six, seven, eight, nine things and then losing focus on, no, let's make sure that we are really looking at muscle and fat and metabolism. So I am conscious of that. And then the other thing is I want to make sure that we can complete these studies generally in an academic semester. So that study has now led us to our current study. So now we're doing a diet break study this semester Uh, We actually started this this past summer. This is in females only. And what we're doing is instead of a five-day diet and then a two-day refeed, we're having our subjects diet straight for six weeks with no breaks at all. Or the other group, the diet break group, is dieting for two weeks, taking an entire week off, dieting for two more weeks, taking a second week off, and then dieting again for two weeks. So both groups are dieting for six total weeks, but the diet break group is actually having an intervention of eight weeks because we have to add these other two weeks in. And what we are basing this study off of is a well-publicized study called the Matador study. I don't know if you're familiar with that. So this is, listen to you see some of the results of this study. This was in obese males, not an exercise study. And what they did in these obese males was they had one group diet for 16 straight weeks. The other group, they said, you're going to diet two weeks on, two weeks off, two weeks on, two weeks off. So essentially, it took about twice the amount of time. What they found at the end of this intervention was the diet break group lost significantly more fat, even though the dieting was the same in terms of weeks. Now, again, it took them longer because they kept taking breaks from it. 
they lost significantly more fat, significantly more body weight. They didn't lose more muscle mass. That was the same. And their metabolic rates were significantly maintained as compared to the other group when controlled for muscle and fat, when controlled for body composition, essentially. So we looked at that study and we had already done our refeed study and we said, okay, let's take this in a group of females that are resistance training. By the way, all of my studies, it's resistance trained males and now females, again, working out in my lab. So we don't need to do 30 weeks of dieting or 16 weeks of dieting. These female subjects are already, they're not obese. They're not overweight. So they already, in theory, look good and they're trying to get leaner. So we don't need to go with long protracted diet lengths. So we have a six-week diet phase here with this study. We're about to start our baseline collection starting next week for the fall semester. Do you have a hard time getting subjects to track and maintain certain macros? Because like on that refeed week... Most people see a refeed and they go, oh, this is every opportunity to stop at Dunkin' Donuts every time I just get a whiff of yeah. you know, whatever as I drive by. So that's a very perceptive question. Obviously, somebody who's familiar with research because that is a major concern. So what we do, we have a huge investment in the education process. And my research team is it's large. It's, this semester is 25 undergraduate master's students. I have my research coordinator, Madeline Siegler, so she's managing this entire study. But what we do is, first of all, we ask, do you know how to track your macros? And again, going back to our first study, we now have a flexible dieting component or culture in our studies. If they know how to track their macros, great. If they don't, we assign them to a nutrition coach. So every single subject, even if they know how to track, they are trained on how to track their macros. They're assigned their individual nutrition coach, who usually is a physique coach in their spare time when they're not studying. And any questions they have, any support they need, we give them. And what we do is we say, okay, for the next two weeks, we've just taught you how to track your macros. Now go home and do it. We give them a scale because we know that if they're not doing this right, what if they gain weight? What if they lose weight? So we want to make sure that they actually are weight stable for the two weeks before they come into our study. So that's what we do to prevent these large fluctuations or this learning curve of this new tracking lifestyle. The reality is though, and this is really what's changed over the years. 10 years ago, if I asked my students, how many of you track your macros? I don't know if one hand would have gone up. Today, when I asked that, three-fourths of my students raised their hand. So the, the whole fitness paradigm of being conscious of what goes into our bodies is different, at least at the college age population. Sure. Very interesting. Do you think there'd be any difference if you, and maybe you've studied this, if you swayed toward carbohydrate or fat macros? Uh, uh, that, that's kind of a you know, loaded question. I personally think if, and several of my students, uh, Kate Callahan comes to mind. She's one who um, has suggested the same thing. I think that if you control protein, I personally don't think in my populations, and I, let's define that, I don't think it would matter. Now, in your world, you're dealing with people who are all sub 10% body fat. At that level, I wouldn't, I think that could matter. And let me just define what my population is. So I explain my research as helping people optimize their physiques within a maintainable lifestyle. So I study bodybuilders because they're the experts in fat loss, muscle gain, which is why I'm very excited to be here. I'm, I'm getting a great education just talking to you out there. 
So my population, they aren't necessarily, let's just say most of them aren't, they're not competitors, but they want to look like a competitor. So they're not necessarily getting to a stage lean body fat. So that's with the world that I live in. So I'm, I'm taking them closer to a stage presence in terms of their physique, but not necessarily stepping on stage. And I don't believe that a bodybuilder on stage, that is a period of time, whether it's 16 weeks, 20 weeks, that's not a maintainable lifestyle. Whereas my research is trying to say, okay, if you want to live a lean lifestyle, what can my research contribute to help you live like this for five years, eight years? Does that make sense? Sure, of course it does. So when we go back to your question of carbs, fat, I think under that purview, I don't think it matters. In the world of getting an extra percent, which is so hard to get off of a competitive physique athlete, it may matter. Yeah, that's so interesting. And there's so many variables in that I'd love to explore at some point, right? It's like looking at the implications of level of stress. Like someone who has higher stress, would they be better adapted to be on a high carbohydrate versus a high fat diet? And my brain, you know, defaults because I mean, I've worked with a lot of people and I always default back to if I can make a shift in somebody's stress, I can make a shift in their body composition and stress may be training. It may be life. It may be finance. It, like who knows, right? But How would you measure stress? Like if I were to incorporate that into my research. Subjective design. first. Cause okay. like how, what's your subjective stress and, and HRV, right? Like heart rate variability, I think is, is really, really important. Respiration rate. You know, if you've looked at that at all, but that's, I'd be curious to see if that was correlated with fat loss in your clients, right? So yeah. the aura ring measures respiration rate. Accuracy again is very subjective. They say it's very, very accurate. But if you're looking at someone who has six to eight breaths per minute compared against someone who has 16 to 18 breaths per minute, Ooh. research would suggest that the person breathing six to eight breaths a minute should have greater fat oxidation, like just by being able to stay in the aerobic pathway longer. Mm-hmm. And so I'd be very curious. I mean, just it would be very interesting to see, just like throw it on your cohort and say like, hey, just wear this. We're not going to tell you what we're looking at, but let's see it and, and just see if there's any correlation because logic would say there should be some. So that's where I would start going down the path of measuring, you know, HRV and respiratory rate and seeing how that ties in with yes. body composition. So I've seen people make a shift from even from 15 to 16 breaths per minute down to 10 to 12 and there's a body composition shift. And that's just like doing some conscious breathing, breathing through your nose when you're training, changing maybe mouth taping when you're sleeping. All those things will shift your body composition relatively quickly, provided that you're not overstressed during the day, right? If you're someone who's like, you know, always racing in your mind during the day, then your, your sympathetic arousal is massive during the day. Yeah, yeah. So just looking at those shifts, because I don't think you can be in a state of high sympathetic arousal and have a lower respiration rate. That doesn't really make sense, right? So right. if we can decrease your, your respiration rate per minute, by definition, we can assume that you have less sympathetic stress. And to me, that maybe shifts the predisposition for nutrition to being, hey, now we can use more fat at rest. And either if you're in a deficit, well, maybe that means you burn more fat or you maybe shift your caloric intake nutritionally toward more fat. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that's, that's exactly the stuff that I want to be maximizing. Yeah. I mean, again, those are things that people can implement into their lifestyles. Yeah. And it's so easy. Yeah. Right? So I always make this joke and I say this all the time on the podcast, but anyone who starts coaching with me the first 30 days, breathe, walk, meditate, that's it. Like I'm not changing your diet. I'm not maybe a little bit if your diet's crazy. I'm not really changing your training. I'll give you a program, but it's like relatively generic. I need you to breathe, walk, and meditate. And if you can't do that for 30 days, you probably can't change your body, right? It's like, why do we breathe? Well, because I need to get your respiration down. Why do we walk? Because it's very reflexive and you should be able to breathe with your mouth closed and it's, you know, cardio, if you will, but it's not. Uh It's more from the reflexive movement pattern pathway and then meditation so we can calm the mind. 
if we can do those things, body composition shifts. I and mean, I've seen crazy fat loss in the first 30 days from people just from that. It's very, and we put them on what I call a primer program, right? And that's just learning the movement patterns. Anyways, I don't want to talk about what I'm doing. Coming back to your studies. So why have you chosen to focus on females? Is that by choice or is that just by, you know, it just happens to be what kind of comes into your lab? No, that is definitely by choice. So I always, I joke and I say the reason I'm focusing on females is because I love females. I married a female, got two daughters, <laughs> two daughters yeah. got a female cat. So <laughs> there's one reason. Right. But practically speaking, if most of my population is a college aged population, so 18 to 24 are my subjects. I've done several powerlifting studies that only had males. So now I've done several physique enhancement studies and only females. At the age of 18 to 24, females are more mature. They are more compliant with diets. They do not come into my lab with an ego like the males do because I have, you know, I'm not the strongest guy in my lab right. when the males come in. So practically speaking, I feel like I'm better able to control the variables with a female population. So it's better science for me. Makes a lot of sense. And they're more appreciative of the opportunities to, to have somebody catering to them. Because as you know, 90% of our field, the research is on males, yeah. the dietary supplement literature, the resistance training literature. So here's this one place up the street from you where if you're a female and you want to improve your physique, we close the lab for you. Right. Like it's, it's your, it's, this is your study. If you had unlimited resources, do you have a couple like ideal studies in your mind where like, man, if I had all the resources in the world, maybe even a larger cohort of people, what would be the most ideal scenario for you to like, I want to study that? No financial restrictions. Wow, man. I am so not used to not having, like, <laughs> you're asking me to basically live on the moon for a second here. Yeah, well, listen, that, I don't think yeah. that's unreasonable, right? Like, you're doing such amazing research. There's so many people out there that are interested in this stuff. Like, let's start a GoFundMe, man. Like, <laughs> everybody throw five bucks in this pot. We'll get you a couple hundred grand. You can run these studies because ultimately we want to learn, right? Like, yeah. I've learned more from you in the last six months than any other researcher on the planet because, like, this diet, not diet situation, I think, is brilliant. And, and because you're seeing such definitive shifts, I mean, people at bodybuilders have tried this for a long time, right? Bodybuilders yeah. have done that you not do, don't eat during the week and then feed on the weekend. But now that you're quantifying it and you're actually putting a, a term on it, there's so much value that I think you'll get people who'd be like, hey, Dr. Campbell, we're going to give you some, let's put some money. I don't know if that you can do that at the university, but like starting a GoFundMe on one particular study, maybe you start three of them and go, hey, this is for one study. This is for this one. And people can choose. Yeah. Well, one on that note, I love USF. I love it. I, if I die in my lab, I'll be a happy guy. Every university, when you're dealing with money, it gets very complicated. But I would love the GoFundMe idea. Dr. Galpin does that, right? He does a um, yeah. Partheon or something like Patreon that. Patreon. Yeah. yeah, somebody yeah, Somebody did tell me he's doing that. Right. So yeah, he's kind of a trailblazer. I suppose what one thing I would do instead of having our subjects track their macros, again, unlimited budget, I would provide them all of their food. We might be able to make that happen. I was actually thinking about that while you were talking. Ago. I was like, I could probably make that happen. I'm not even kidding. And you quantify each meal with like, hey, this is 500 calories, this is 700 calories, whatever yes. they need per meal. And they just pick them. I think I, I almost was, I was literally thinking about that. Well, that would be one thing. Because okay. right now, and again, I feel very good about my data. There's no worse feeling for me than to have data and not trust it. So I trust my right. data. But I am assuming that these subjects with their nutrition coaches are giving me accurate macros. If I could provide them food 
and have them live in this new building that I'm going to build hypothetically with no finances where they live there for six months. And then, yeah, we would easily do the carb versus fat study. That'd probably be one of the first ones. So think about the, the benefit for any of the meal prep companies listening, right? They're like, hey, so if I provide the meals for the one side of the group and then there's a control group that eats whatever they want, and then I can quantify my meals being better for fat loss than this other group. Maybe that's a win for a meal prep company. Send anybody listening out there. Yes. Yeah. Reach I'll, out I'll, to Dr. Campbell. <laughs> that's a great idea. Just yeah. the fact, yeah, of meal prep. Yeah. And they're relatively high in protein. So I'm sure we uh, would hit their protein. You could, just, you could just have them say, like, this is what I need, right? And you could quantify. And you could do a carb group and a fat group. And then a control group. Like, you just macro guided. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. a great idea. There's our, all right. We're going to make that happen. Somebody <laughs> listening out there is going to make that happen. I believe it. Even if someone just wants to contribute six weeks of their time to come in and cook for you. Moving to the lab for yes. six weeks. Do you have a kitchen yet? No kitchen. We have a refriger- we have a refrigerator. Right. So we're gonna we're gonna work on that's part of the budget. We're gonna work on getting you. A I love I, I love this brainstorm. This is good. Yes. So that would be it, right? So we'd be getting people for a six month duration. Would it be longer duration? Would it be more people? What would be the the ideal demographic? Uh, my ideal same demographic. Females. So resistance trained females who are not overweight who want to basically go from good to great. But again. I'm very conscious of getting so lean. Let's make this a lifestyle because, oh, here's something I found. I I did a talk in Dallas in January and in my prep for that talk, I came across several studies around this theory that lean people who aren't overweight that go on a diet are more at a greater risk for future fat gain than currently. You've already heard this. Yes. Actually, Lane was in here and brought up that study for me. Wow. There's a couple studies. I mean, one of them is the famous Minnesota starvation experiment. There's a study in twins showing this. It gets kind of sad for me having kids. When you have young children that diet, their likelihood of being overweight in an adult is the odds are significantly increased. So again, my research, we want to make sure that we're not crash dieting or just doing things that aren't sustainable. So what's happening in somebody's body in your eyes? So let's say I do a 16-week diet. I'm very lean to begin with. I do a 16-week diet. We're seeing some metabolic shutdown. How do you define that? So what we measure in my lab is the resting metabolic rate. So we see that. So we also do a lot of case studies on bodybuilders and bikini competitors. How how is that measured? So like what what are you actually measuring? Oh, so what we're doing, let me just say there's two ways to measure that. One would be what's known as direct calorimetry. So that's where if this room were completely sealed off from the environment, we would be able to measure the heat that's produced. Okay. We don't do that. There's not many of those labs. What we do is what most labs do. We measure gas exchange. So we'll put a plastic bubble over somebody's head and we collect all of the gases that they're breathing, which is oxygen and carbon dioxide. And essentially, there's a direct correlation between the amount of oxygen that you consume from the atmosphere and the amount of calories that you're burning. So the more oxygen you're consuming, the more calories you're burning. So we do this at rest and that's our marker of your metabolic rate. So that's how we measure that. So it's a resting metabolic rate synonymous with basal metabolic rate. So my brain then goes to, correct me if I'm incorrect, if someone's respiratory rate slows down to the six breaths per minute, in theory, they're burning less calories. No, because what we're measuring is the oxygen consumption. So in theory, if somebody has a slower breath rate, maybe those are deeper breaths and they're able to breathe in and 
oxidize or consume more oxygen. So in theory, what you're saying is true, but we're not measuring breathing rate. Right. So um, it's the total volume. But yes, if the breaths were the same, that would be the case. So someone who has more muscle mass, but happens to have a lower resp- respiration rate, how would we account for that? So let's say I'm breathing six breaths a minute and maybe my oxygen consumption is relatively low, but I have a tremendous amount of muscle mass. Would that somehow figure out how many calories? It's solely based on the amount of oxygen that's consumed. Now, I'm just not- trying to get to like accuracies. Is this the gold standard? Because I'm familiar, but I'm not yeah. like... I don't know how much it's actually been correlated with. Well, I'm, I'm trying to trying to find an outlier situation. Yeah, right? I think the gold standard is the room where we're measuring the actual body heat. Right. But I would say 98% of the labs that test metabolic rate are doing what we do. It's called indirect calorimetry, and it's basically oxygen consumption, and it's highly reliable. Like it's um, so. If, I know you you're measuring ratios, right? So if it's like the amount of excreted CO2 relative to the amount of inhaled oxygen. Can you tell us how that math works? Are you familiar with it? Like if someone has a greater amount of CO2 excreted, that correlates with? Yeah. So what that does, what you're describing is something called the respiratory exchange ratio, RER or respiratory quotient RQ. What that will do, and that formula is CO2 produced. So the amount of carbon dioxide that we're breathing out divided by the amount of oxygen that you're breathing in or consuming. What that will do is it gives us a ratio, and that ratio physiologically ranges from 0.7, which in theory is pure fat. You're burning pure fat. And on the upper range of this is 1.0. If if your respiratory exchange ratio, if you're breathing out the same amount of CO2 as oxygen consumed, your ratio is 1. That is pure carbohydrate oxidation, or you're burning pure carbs. So when we do this test, we're actually able to tell our subjects, hey, out of all the calories you're burning, you are burning 80% of your calories from fat or 40% of your calories from fat. And interestingly, you brought this up, but now I'm starting to look at the correlations of that and body fat outcomes in our subjects. Sure. So if you maybe directed someone to say, hey, your inhale is going to be five seconds and your exhale is going to be seven seconds. And we're going to actually have you stay in this metered breathing rate that I'm going to give you something that actually shows you how to stay there. Do you think that would shift them more into a fat loss state at rest? I don't know, but that's something that could be testable. It's easily testable. I I honestly don't know how that would impact it. One fear would be, is there any holding in this? I don't know. We'd have to look at it. Because then the CO2 levels would be generated. Yeah. So So that could be a good thing then. Well, it would be less fat less fat burning as this ratio is giving. So as it's calculated, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're burning less fat over a day. So if they're holding, CO2 goes up, fat burning will go down? Yes. Well, what that implies is if you're burning more CO2, think of this, if you're out running or sprinting, you're generating a lot more CO2. Are you burning relatively more fat or carbs? Well, you're burning more carbs, you're running. Yes, yes, yes. Now, again, we have to separate relative versus the absolute amount. I would have to parse out those things. But as soon as you start... So you could build into that somebody's tolerance to CO2, right? Are you familiar with that whole... uh, No, uh, could you... Yeah. So the suggestion is as someone's resonant respiration rate goes down, the reason it is, is their body's starting to develop more of a tolerance to accumulating CO2 in your blood. So that's typically correlated with a higher dissolved CO2 in your blood. So I think you're looking at like 
42 nanograms per deciliter, whatever the measurement would be, millimeters of mercury. Yes, or something. Yeah, pressure, yeah. Millimeters of mercury. So accumulating more CO2 in the blood will allow their heart rate to then be lower and therefore stay in fat burning longer, even at high levels of aerobic capacity. So most people typically switch into anaerobic at 75% of their max. Yeah. There's been people out there who maybe lower than that typically, right? There's people who can push it higher even into the 80s as far as staying aerobic, burning fat. Yeah, they're, they're really, conditioned, yeah. Right. So that's there's a huge correlation there, if not direct correlation, with that tolerance to carbon dioxide accumulation in the system, right? So yeah. if you're able to accumulate more CO2 with these breath holds, there may be something to explore there again, your area of focus where if someone has a greater tolerance of CO2, they may actually be burning more fat at rest. Does yeah. that make sense? Yes. Yeah, so does. if you're breathing heavy, you're producing more CO2, but you're excreting more CO2. So that would make sense that you're going to be burning more carbohydrate. Yeah. Now, I don't know. I have to think through that. Yeah. I don't know. And our machine is the one. It's called a Parvo True one. It's the one that almost every the lab has. Um, I want I to come to the lab and study this stuff. This is where we're going. You're going to drag yeah. me in there now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious. I'll have to look. I don't know if we if it measures breathing frequency. I have another unit. It's Cosmed unit that's a little more portable. That one does. Or you can sit there and count the breaths. That's a face mask right. rather than a hood. So that's Yeah, you just have to determine kind of the inhalation, exhalation length, right? Yes. So breathe in for five, breathe out for eight, whatever yes. subjective thing. And then so you're timing, okay, that's going to give you this many breaths per minute. Let's see how much CO2 you're expiring. So this is just the idea of studying capnography, right? Studying yes. the, yeah. the yeah, so this ideal study where I'm providing all of the food to these subjects, and I guess the one very again, if there is, if Bill Gates is sitting here with a check, design this study, we have them live in my lab or in a facility. So you can control everything. Yep, exactly. But what external variables do you think are actually causing the greatest impact? So is it like I want to? The reason I want them to live with me is because. I want to control the stress. I want to control the screen time. I want to control their sleep. I want to control their HRV. What would be the things that you think like, if I could control this, this, okay. this, this, and this, what would be most important? So the only thing would be their ability to track accurately. So if I'm giving them the food, watching them eat it, and let's say, oh, I didn't eat everything. Then we take it back and we weigh it and we say, Got okay, it. we can take out that. But I'll actually give an argument against that under my philosophy of doing this within a maintainable lifestyle, right. am I doing them any favors in terms of the research? Because people don't live in a facility. So I live comfortably how we do things. But if I wanted to control that better, that's what I'd want to control better. So there's no question on the macro intake. So it sounds like, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, that your belief is, I think I've seen you post this, but I want to, I want to substantiate it. Your belief is fat loss is only about macros. No, I don't believe that's the case. I do think that that is the largest piece of the pie. Right. And that is what most people, what I don't like is, and I'm on a world of dietary supplement research as well. People will gravitate towards what's the best supplement I can take for fat loss. Sure. Oh, what should my ratios be on my high intensity interval training? And I want to say, are you on top of your diet? Are First. you eating? In a, yes. So to me, that's, I think a lot of people, they go around that and they're looking for the secret. Sure. They don't want to change the diet, but we're going to look for something else. Yes. So my research says, I'm going to go all in on what I think is the largest piece of the pie. Let's let me contribute to the scientific literature on this. And once you get that nailed, 
now, okay, what's the best supplement? And I love this breathing, this, the fact that you're taking fat off of people without even changing anything other than walking, breathing. Stress management. Yes. So stress management could be huge for uh, at that point. So yeah, I wouldn't want to say it's only macros. It's what most people can control and quantify in their own life. So we also brought up this idea of you're doing these really short term, like how fast can we lose fat? Yeah. That sounds like everyone's ideal dream, right? It's like, yeah, I'm getting ready for, you know, wedding or beach or pool or whatever. Yes. How quickly can I lose fat? Let's talk about those. All right. So I am actually being a hypocrite to some extent because I don't like people going on crash diets. Don't do it. You set yourself up for failure for the next six months. So why are we designing rapid fat loss studies? So that's what we're going to do. And we have to step, take a step back and contextualize this within this diet break paradigm. When I say diet break, I have people who are not dieting for, let's say, four weeks, and then they're going to diet for a week or two. Then they're going to come out, not diet for another couple weeks, then diet again. So under that paradigm, what I want to do is say, okay, you're not going to diet a lot in your lifestyle, but when you do, I want you to just kill it for that week. One, you should have high motivation because you haven't been beat down by a 12-week diet week after week after week. Two, your energy level should be high. You haven't been dieting. So if we can assume that you're not going to diet a lot in your life, but when you do, we're going to make it the most efficient fat loss system known to man, because that's what I want to do. What do you need to do? So that's the question we're asking. It's a great question. I'd love to be part of that. I'd love to explore your thought process. So. Yeah. And one thing, I'm allowing my students to design these now. And I would love for you, and I'm going to ask some other experts as well, just to give us their thoughts. This will be a very teachable moment for me. Students, you're going to design this, my research team. The idea is, I mean, my research team may be metaphorically living with these subjects. Sure. Let's just say our protocol says you're doing two and a half hours of cardio a day. Let's just, I don't know if that's what it will be. I want to make sure that we have somebody watching them run for two, whatever it is. So it's going to be a highly intense one or two weeks for the subject, something they could never maintain. And I also need to say, we are designing this such that we want to maintain their muscle mass and their metabolic rate. Otherwise, we would just starve them for two weeks or a week. Okay, just Eat as little as you can for a week. We're not doing that. We want to take off as much fat mass as we can while protecting your metabolic rate and muscle right. mass. And the objective would be no interventions going into that, right? You do it like so that four weeks leading in, you're not going to interfere with that. Anyway, just do what you do. Come in here for a week and we're going to do this. Yes. Now, we would, whether it's one week, two weeks, or a month, we need to be tracking them going into this. So even though I'm saying this is a one week or two week fat loss study, it's still an eight, 10 week because sure. I want to make sure that they are weight stable going in. I want to make sure that we didn't damage them coming out. So sure. we'll have to monitor them for you know a couple of weeks after. Sure. So my intervention would be if there was four weeks leading in, would be see see what you can take there to review too, right? So what I would suggest would be the most beneficial way to approach fat loss is I want to get to the highest amount of sympathetic arousal possible and the lowest amount of or highest amount of parasympathetic arousal, right? So I want to have the greatest amount of heart rate variability. Why? So if you're asking me during this week to produce a tremendous amount of effort during this exercise, well, I need to be able to get up to a high amount of effort and maybe sustain it, maybe not. Like sustaining isn't necessarily the objective. 
and then I need to be able to come back down. So I'm not staying in the high amount of sympathetic arousal. So I would suggest looking at heart rate variability going into that study and the people who have the greatest amount of heart rate variability, I could be completely wrong, but I would speculate we'll get the greatest amount of fat loss. result because that allows them to access the high and then come down to low, which, you know, you want to live in that low if you're in the parasympathetic, yes. if you're looking to optimize fat loss. So if we're going to control some variables going into that, maybe just take a peek at that and say like, hey, see where that correlates. I don't know if there's any studies out there that have shown that, but it seems like that would make a lot of sense. So when I'm trying to train myself or another athlete, I can always tell. So you're almost looking at it like a box, right? That the less healthy you are, the less heart rate variability you have. That, yeah. So that when you try to train heavy, you can't. And when you try to relax, you can't. You just you close the box in and around you, right? You're living in this little box. So the most healthy person will have the most resilient autonomic nervous system. Therefore, they're able to access the high amount of stress and a low amount of parasympathetic recovery. So if there's some interventions you could look at leading into that fat loss study to optimize that and give them that opportunity to get the greatest amount of work and recovery during that week, because ultimately during that week, your objective will be how hard can I push you? But pushing hard is of no benefit if they're going to stay aroused and not be able to sleep and not be able to calm down. Yeah. Right? So like, I've, well, I can only push you as hard as your body can recover from in that short, acute window. So hard can I push you is going to be, has to be subjective, has to be person to person based on their ability to like not have panic attacks and not be dependent on coffee and not, you know, yes. like not interfere with their sleep. So that would be the intervention. That's what this breathe, walk, meditate intervention is, right? It's like, I need to get your HRV up. So. And you typically do that for 30 days where you're monitoring days. that? Yeah, 30 days. And we'll put them on a high fat diet. We'll bring the carbohydrate down, just attempt to bring down inflammation, uh-huh. right? So, and then that from that point, then we're going to bring the carbohydrates back in according to your effort. Like if you're someone who can train a lot, you have a lot of muscle, you need more carbohydrate. If you're not, pulling it out. Okay. Again, that's just the way that I approach it. But that would be my belief if going into that one week of a fat loss. But if you're saying that, well, we don't want to interfere with their diet or anything going into that one week, that's a new point. And then I think then the training would need to be equated to their ability to recover from it, right? Maybe tough to do because you want to have some standardization, but maybe yeah. not standardizing for the to training and see if you can standardize for, I don't know, you have to think that one through. But that this is the, these are the kind of variables I'm like, my brain starts going off like there's so many variables that would need to be paid attention to. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And no matter what you choose, you're making something else fall off. Yes, yeah. <laughs> totally. it's, it's the because I'm thinking ahead if maybe we should standardize it based on their current exercise levels. That probably makes more sense to me. It does no good to say everybody's going to exercise an hour. Well, what if somebody was doing two hours per week? Now they've decreased their exactly. So yeah, we've got a lot to think about, but you're piquing my interest on appreciating the stress response or the being able to track HRV. Right. So I don't think you did mention this within that one week. What are your intended interventions, right? Like what is it going to look like to lose maximum fat? You know, my brain goes to carnivore. Just eat meat, right? Like just protein. To me, that's probably going to be the fastest. Uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but probably going to be the fastest. No, not, I, not maybe sustainable, but like. Yeah. Well, and again, as much as I advocate for a sustainable, we're asking you to do this for a week. You don't have to sustain this. Right. But yeah, clearly to me, from a macro-based perspective, it's got to be high protein. Whether that, I mean, that might be 50% of the calorie. I don't know. But it, yeah, it's, yeah, you make a good point there, carnivore. That may be the. Yeah, I mean, approach. I've seen some people do some pretty crazy things in a short amount of time. And then maybe you compare that against like a you know, typical bodybuilding diet, which is like the high protein, high carb, low fat. Compare that against the ketogenic diet, so low protein, high, uh, high fat, and see which one performs best. That would be a cool study. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you could control that, those many variables. But I could. Like, My only hesitation there is since this is a week, I don't think we're going to – I don't think a week is enough change. time. Even if, if keto is better, 
I probably would need to bring that for four weeks. Again, we've got a <laughs> we've got a lot of designing to do. Yeah. And it is funny. We're now knee deep in this diet break study, but we have to turn right around in the next week or two and start planning for what we're going to do in the spring. Which so is what? Well, these rapid fat loss studies. I mean, yeah. that's that. Well, hopefully, my plan is to run them in the spring, and maybe we could tag it as a spring break study. There you go. <laughs> Same for spring break. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be fun. So how do you get into this? Like this whole physique lab, physique enhancement studying, like where did it start for you? I changed careers when I was younger. I was in, um, I used to sell bug killer and weed killer, not exciting, but I loved bodybuilding. I couldn't get enough of that. I bought the magazines, made all the mistakes. I know, you, you know, Dorian Yates, I, he was like, you know, the icon when I was- Yeah, me too, man. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, Yeah. His blood and guts. I was in college and I kept calling my parents, did the video come yet? Did the video come yet? Just trying to, you know, pretend I was him in the gym. So that's where my bodybuilding passion started. And once I got in my role as a professor, I did mostly dietary supplement research because those are fundable projects. And I've been able to transition to what's a little bit more of my true passion, which is... You just missed a big chunk there. How'd you go from like selling weed killer to... Oh, well, I, re I remember this quote. I don't remember where I read it, but somewhere and it stuck in my head. If you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. True and story. I was like, okay, well, I think I want to work for a dietary supplement company because I, I, again, I was so focused on that. So I quit my job and I was like, all right. Now what? I know I need to go back to school because I had a business degree and my GPA was horrible because I just didn't care about marketing and, or business. Right. So I worked at a group home for about two years. And when I say group home, I took care of mentally disabled or developmentally disabled males. So I would dress them in the morning, get them off to their daycare, had to feed them, shower them. So it was like, okay. And I know my parents were like, why are you doing like, not that they didn't support me, but I could tell they were like, and my mom had done that. She was like, you know, I, I didn't go to college and I'm cleaning up poop. So why are you doing this? And I was like, well, you know, I, I want to change careers. I want to, you know, I had no idea I was going to be a professor. No idea. So I did that for two years, ended up at a university called Frostburg State University to keep my education going, to get all the prerequisites I needed to get into a master's program. So I managed a residence hall there. And I've said this a few times, I, I slept in my car a few nights. Not that I couldn't have, I had a place to stay. I could have driven back to my parents, but it was like a three hour drive. And it's funny, I, I remember this story. I'm sleeping in the parking lot in my car and it wasn't a great place in town. I remember I got to pee and I'm like, I'm going to get arrested. And so I I'm just remember trying to pee real quick thinking, I'm, just, I'm definitely going to get arrested peeing in a parking lot. You know, this, it was, I tried to go in a well with it area. So I, at the time, these things, I'm like, well, that's just, you know, it's what you do. But looking back, I don't know if a lot of people would do that. Again, at the time, I didn't even appreciate it. So anyway, found myself getting more and more prerequisites, working at a university or working at a college as a residence hall director finally started that I, I had enough prerequisites to apply for graduate programs. And I'll never forget, Virginia Tech University did not return my email. That still pisses me off to this day. <laughs> I could be here talking about how great Virginia Tech is. Colorado State rejected me. They said, sorry, but you don't qualify for our program. And I respect that. Not everybody gets into a graduate program. Right. I've gone on 
kept applying. I ended up studying with Dr. Richard Kreider, who's like the creatine expert. Mm-hmm. Dr. Darren Willoughby, who is like a muscle physiology yeah, he's been expert. On the show. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So I ended up studying with them at Baylor University. And I'm a Christian. So throughout all of this, God has blessed me to no end. I've got a perfect wife, perfect job. I'm very blessed, extremely blessed. So got to Baylor, realized I don't think I want to work for a dietary supplement company. I think I'd like to contribute as a researcher. So that's how. I ended up where I'm at. Did that no, answer great, your question? Man. Good for you. Yeah, that's amazing. And I know Dr. Willoughby is amazing. I'm not familiar, too familiar with Dr. Krager, but I know I did see you did some research on creatine. Yes, yeah. yeah. I think I'm one of the world's biggest advocates of creatine. Like, oh, yeah. I suggest everyone, like literally everyone should be taking creatine every day, not just for the muscle benefits. What did you study when you studied with Dr. Krager? Did you study the creatine and the benefits? Yeah, we did a creatine, maybe one or two creatine studies. We did a ZMA study. We did curves for women. A lot of our research was in obese females, diet and exercise, losing weight. Was creatine mostly muscle-centric stuff or was it like the other benefits of creatine? No, no, it was all muscle-centric. Yeah. Performance and muscle mass stuff. My dissertation was with Dr. Willoughby. I looked at the effects of leucine and branched-chain amino acids on the AKT, mTOR, and MAP kinase pathways. So the cell signaling pathways that are associated with skeletal muscle hypertrophy. So that was my dissertation. So let's talk about that because that is misunderstood. So Dr. Lane Norton talks about that. That was one of his. Yeah, he did areas. a dissertation in, in rodents on leucine. As right, yeah. So did you do it in humans? Yeah, mine was in humans. Yes. So yeah. what do we need to know about that? Like what are the, I mean, everyone thinks that two to three grams of leucine every two to three hours is the MPS signal and that's initiating the mTOR pathway. And that was, I don't know how much you've studied mTOR, but I'm not an expert in mTOR by any stretch. And I'd love to learn more about how leucine and BCAs are directly impacting mTOR. So It was my dissertation. I wouldn't call myself an expert in this, but it was my life for two years. So the way that I look at leucine, BCAAs, and protein in general is leucine is special. It basically results in the phosphorylation of key proteins in what we call the AKT mTOR pathway. And what that does is essentially it accelerates muscle protein synthesis. Leucine clearly does that. So if I I see a light switch over here, leucine basically turns on the light, the light switch to muscle protein synthesis. Now, is it a dimmer or is it on and off? I'll say it's on and off. I would think the activity of all of the other amino acids are so muted compared to leucine. So MPS is either on or it's off? Well, with leucine, we'll either upregulate it or it won't. But that might lead somebody to think, okay, I need to take leucine every two to three hours and I'm going to maximize muscle protein synthesis. And to that, I would say you need to slow down. Leucine does turn the light switch on for anabolism with the AKTMTOR pathway, but the actual building of the muscle proteins, you need all of the amino acids. So leucine turns on the light, but you got to make sure there's a light bulb in there or maybe five light bulbs. So all of these other amino acids are needed to actually build the muscle. So I'm an advocate of high quality whole protein sources. When I say high quality, I mean high leucine content because you want that stimulus, but all of the other amino acids, even the non-essential ones, they're incorporated into the protein structure, the the myosin filaments. Now, if you're not an mTOR expert, you may not have this answer, but what are the other variables affecting mTOR? So there's been some thought, and like I said, I don't know about this, that carbohydrate repletion is impacting mTOR pathways. Do you look at that at all? 
No, I definitely didn't look at it. I think that's more of a recent line of research. And when you say impacted, low carbohydrates suppress. Yeah. 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 I'm aware of that, but I don't, I can't contribute to the conversation. I'm not on top of that literature. Perfect. Perfect. Are you planning on sticking with the female studies or do you have intentions of going after the muscle building studies or the male studies? Or are you going to stay in that lane of just like, let's figure out how to optimize fat loss for women? I think that's where I'll stand. And also muscle and maintaining muscle mass. So essentially, it's very reflective that you're asking me this. I think I really want to kind of just keep narrowing my focus on the ideal diet break structure to fit right. lifestyles. We just answered my last question. That was my last question. It's like, so for our listeners, what's the exact protocol, right? What does it look like if I want to take a diet break or if I know I want to lose fat over the long term, what should my diet slash diet break ratio be and where should I be experimenting with it? So I'll share my three principles of physique enhancement. One, lose weight slowly. So I never want people to try to do a crash diet. Two, keep protein levels high, especially when dieting. I never drop protein when people diet. And then three, resistance train. Those three things help us maintain muscle mass, help us with metabolic rate. In terms of your specific question, I like to think that people shouldn't spend a large, and again, this is not physique athletes. This is not bodybuilders on stage. That's a different population. And I study them because I learn from them. I take what they teach me and I try to apply it to the masses. But what I think they... And I truly believe this. I think in four years or five years, it won't only be that the conversation around dieting won't be, oh, how much are you reducing your calories? It will be, how many diet breaks do you have planned? I think that will literally be the future of dieting. I don't think other than competitors, you're going to see people dieting for five, six, eight, ten 10 plus weeks straight. Now, my research on that that we're currently doing, maybe the results come out and diet breaks are worse, then I'll change my mind on this. But I'd like to think that my contribution will be to help people think this next year, I want to lose eight pounds. I'm not going to diet half the year to get there. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to kill it for a week or two. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to kill it for a week or two. So it gives them a much more normal lifestyle. That's where my head is. Okay. So what would be your subjective marker of when it's time to stop the diet phase? Is there one? Or is it like, I'm going to set a period of time and I'm going to say, this is what I'm going to do. Or do I look for some type of objective or subjective markers of like, Hey, okay, now it's time to do it. Okay. What guides, and I love that question. What kind of guides my philosophy on that is what I'm going to say. Can most people get that in their own normal lives without having to travel to a lab? What we will do in my lab to measure when it's time to make a change is metabolic rate. If your metabolic rate is starting to be suppressed, I don't want you there because now I just set you up for failure in the next four or five weeks. I'm hoping that there's going to be some other variable and maybe it is HRV, something that everybody has access to. Not everybody can go get their metabolic rate tested. So in my lab, it will be metabolic rate. I'm hoping for something that's a little more. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to ask this question because I still can't get my head around it. Metabolic rate is only defined as your amount of oxygen consumption per minute, per 10 seconds. So it's the amount of oxygen consumption and then what's presented, the data that's taken from that. I mean, that's measured in millimeters of oxygen per kilogram or an absolute amount. But what the data that's presented is your calorie burning over 24 hours. So as an example, my resting metabolic rate is 1800. Your resting metabolic rate is 2800. Nobody's going to appreciate oxygen. So we just put it in calories over 24 hours. 
So if somebody has a fast metabolism, their resting metabolic rate will be higher. Now, how, so does the machine just measure that by, I'm just trying to correlate like how, how it comes to that. Well, how breathing would affect that, right? So if you change somebody's respiration rate or their overall gas exchange, I can't see it being only due to, hey, I'm breathing faster, requiring more oxygen to fuel more caloric breakdown. Maybe it is. I'm just trying to figure out like if I, if I shifted someone, if I consciously shifted someone's respiration rate or their ratios of inhalation, exhalation, would that in any way impact the readout on this 24-hour kilometer calorie? Think about this. If the only thing I'm doing is changing my breathing rate, the only muscle that I'm really impacting is my diaphragm. But it could be changing the efficiency. You're saying gas exchange and diaphragmatic contraction. Yeah, but I'm trying to look at this from knowing that the metabolic rate is tied to oxygen consumption. Yeah. I'm just thinking the diaphragm's not a large, I'm not sure how much that would, just changing the breathing frequency on an acute basis. I think what you're getting at and what you've seen in your clients is if you change the breathing efficiency, you're seeing chronic changes over 30 days. This test, that's about a 20-minute test, by the way, I don't know if that's the test to be able to detect the changes of chronic fat loss. I'm just trying to understand, right. I'm trying to understand how seeing somebody lose metabolic rate via this measurement is only measured via oxygen exchange. I'm just trying to get it. Like I, I, well, I kind of get it, but I'm trying to like yeah. bridge the gap. Another way that I could explain it is there's a direct correlation with oxygen and heat energy, which is what calories sure. is. So. If you were to burn or, you know, light a liter of oxygen, it's approximately five calories of energy. Right. So if you consume in your body a liter of oxygen, okay. yep. there's your five. So right. that's the correlation. So then this metabolic, this is where I'm going with this metabolic shutdown we're seeing with, you know, people are losing metabolic rate would just be as simple as finding a way to increase their oxygen consumption, either with exercise or increasing the muscle mass, or that's what I'm trying to get to. Yeah. What, what what actually is causing this decreased oxygen utilization that's correlating with the metabolic shutdown or downregulation? So if people are on a diet, they're losing weight. Now you have less mass. Now you have less need for the oxygen. Activities. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you have less mass. You don't need to consume as much oxygen because you have less body to consume it. What we found is there's a concept known as adaptive thermogenesis. So you lose weight, your metabolic rate goes down in conjunction with the amount of weight that you lost, but metabolic rate actually goes down more than what would be expected with your weight loss. That concept is called adaptive thermogenesis. And that's this area of what we know is Rapid weight loss, trying to lose fat way too quickly causes this. You have downregulation of you know, T4, T3, cortisol tends to go up a little bit. So there's a hormonal adaptation that may be contributing to this. So there's where metabolic rate will go down with weight loss. We don't want it to go down correspondingly more than your weight loss. So fasting may not be the best idea for people looking to lose fat. Fasting. Can you define fasting? Sure. Well, <laughs> if we're talking about just being in a caloric deficit, zero calories, right? Like if I'm not going to eat for five days, logic would say that's probably the fastest way to burn fat Yes. until something shuts down or, or we get a cortisol yes. spike, right? Yeah. Yeah. So my fear with that, I'm not aware of any studies on that, but yeah, my fear would be your metabolic rate 
was here, you've fasted for five days, now your metabolic rate's here. Now when you go back to your normal lifestyle, what used to be maintenance calories is now a 200-calorie surplus. So you're going right. to think of so this. So how do we the, fix that? Is it just muscle loss? Like how can that happen in such a short period of time? What are the actual variables being changed? How do I bring that back? So I think part of this is, and I or we were talking about Lane Norton earlier, they're a reverse diet where you're slowly bringing calories back. Right, but how about the research that suggests that that doesn't make any sense? I've seen research now that Well, it suggests, doesn't make any sense to me. Right. There's, on, there's, on. there's research that says five days of caloric excess will bring that metabolic rate up just as fast as the long-term reverse diet. Okay. So, yeah. Almost like a recovery diet. Right. Kind so of, kind rather than... That's where I thought your research was stemmed from was this idea of like, we can get that metabolic rate up in three to five days of eating at BMR or above. Your body will upregulate to the same amount it would over six weeks of reverse dieting. Yes. So it just completely debunked the idea of reverse dieting. But, and I don't know, so I'm asking, if you bring it up fast, are those people gaining more fat in those well, How much days? fat are you going to gain in five days compared to, I don't know, like yeah, how much It might only be a, yeah, I don't, right. you would say it would be insignificant. Right. So if you diet for three weeks and then diet break for five days, unless you're eating well beyond, <laughs> right? Like unless you're doing yeah. craziness. The likelihood of getting back any significant amount of fat is small. It's just got to measure calories or, or control for calories, right? So let's say I eat an extra 3,000 calories a day. Most I'm going to gain back is in five days, four pounds, maybe. Like, maybe. And that's, even not, that's be, not going to be fat, pure fat either. That's, right. Okay. So then, you know, if that's enough time to give me that metabolic upregulation, maybe that's the ideal scenario, right? That's what where the study is ideally headed. Yeah. It's like, what's the shortest amount of time that I need to do to get my body upregulated again so I can get back in a diet? That's what I'd be interested in as an athlete. It's like, I know I'm going to diet for three weeks at a time. And then what's the shortest amount of time I need to get the, the metabolic upshift so that I can get back into a caloric deficit and not experience the constant metabolic shutdown? That would be. It's funny you're saying this. So I had, um, we, and when I say we, I had a graduate student, James Longstrom. We designed a very comprehensive case series study. Our intent with this study was to take physique athletes and I think we got 12, 12 physique athletes. And James did a great, I mean, he designed all of this down to all of the essential details. Our intent was to have people after their show. So we started testing them literally the day the show was on Saturday. We got them, I think, Monday or no, peak week right before the show. And then we followed them for eight weeks after. The intent of this case study was to have half of our physique athletes do a very gradual reverse diet approach. The other half, and again, these were only case series. We couldn't get 40 subjects to do exactly what you said. Go up right away, and we tracked them for eight weeks. That was our study design. When the study was over, and we even gave templates as examples, hey, this is what you should be doing. Nobody was able to. The data, which we wanted to be like this, was like this. So we couldn't actually separate the two approaches. And these were in physique athletes. So we attempted to answer that question. I think physique athletes is our demographic because most people develop such a bad relationship with food during that prep that the idea of controlling calories during that time typically is not going to happen from my yeah. experience. Yeah. Well, one thing that I was you know talking about when it's time to do a refeed, have you looked at body temperature? No, we did look at body temperature in one of our early thermogenic studies, and I found, which has surprised me, no correlation with body temperature and metabolic rate with this particular dietary supplement. But I've heard, just thinking back, like I think Dan Duchesne used to have everybody do body temperature. On First thing in the morning. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I do that with clients, with high-level clients. And what, clients. what are you finding? 
I find that when you see about a full degree in decrease in body temperature, it's usually like, so if you've been on a caloric deficit for seven to 10 days, I'll usually start to see about a degree change in body temperature. And that's the time to make a shift up for me. Okay. Right. So if, if you're, if you have someone in a caloric deficit, you know, they're, they're like going to be like, you know, they're 98.5. They're like going to be in that range repeatedly. All of a sudden one day they'll wake up and, or you'll slowly start to trend down or the one day they'll wake up and it'll be significantly lower, stay there for two or three days. Okay, well, now it's time for that review. That's what I would use as a... As and you've a, done this. Yeah, yeah, for a long period of time. Have you also noticed a similar HRV response? Like, are At the time, unfortunately, I wasn't also measuring HRV because okay. I didn't have the ability, right? Or a ring wasn't so easily accessible. It was just a heart rate strap. And asking someone to wake up in the morning or sleep with a heart rate strap wasn't yeah, reasonable. Yeah, it's not maintainable. Um, so this is a couple of years back. I have data. I have tons of data just like every day. So we have this check-in sheet. So everybody would check in every morning with their heart rate and with their body temperature useful, I think. And I started to see correlations for sure. So I give them a calorie bump and go back up. And then, you know, if I see it, it would have to stay up for two or three days before I would make any shift. Yeah. And is um, this always in contest prep or anybody. this is just, okay, lifestyle anybody. as well? Yeah. So maybe something to look at. I don't know that the rings measure body temperature, but easy enough to grab a thermometer and throw it in your tongue for 10 yeah. seconds or in your ear or whatever. So. Yeah. Or even those, one we used was a forehead <laughs> yeah. in our study. Very, very cool. Quick. Dr. Campbell, amazing. Where are people going to find your new Patreon account starting? <laughs> well, let me start with Instagram since I have that one. My Instagram account is at Bill Campbell, PhD. Amazing. And so if you guys want to learn more about amazing research, he literally posts something every day, which is a little bit, I don't know about controversial, but verifying the questions that are commonly asked and the actual answer posts really, really good Instagram posts literally every day, I think. Very close I tried to, to do, trying to do every day. Yeah. yeah and you've got that. He's got a very particular format. It's like, which one do you think is right? And then he'll, he'll give a grit. <laughs> yeah. It's like response. a, like an exam you would take in a college course. Essentially it's a multiple choice test. Yeah. Awesome. So Dr. Campbell, thanks so much. Incredible. And I'm looking forward to hopefully working together and learning more from you in the future. Yeah. Thank you very much thanks for very having much, me. That's a wrap, ladies and gents. I hope you love the conversation with Dr. Campbell. If you did enjoy the conversation, head over to social media and give him a follow. And also, I want to let you guys know about the new muscleintelligence.com that is now live. We've got some amazing new programs, some body part specialization programs and guides. So if you're having a hard time building any body part, I've put together a guide for every body part that will help you understand the tips, tricks, and cues that are most effective for the body part to train it correctly, train it intelligently. And there's a bunch of videos that are going to be included as well. You can also pick up a 30-day workout. If that's something you're into, you actually want to build this body part. This is something I highly suggest you guys pick up. It's the best program I've ever put together as far as building this body part is very high frequency, but that's really what you need to learn the movements, to learn the patterns, to lock in the movement patterns into your nervous system, into your brain that will allow you to build muscle, not only today, not only this week, but for the rest of your life. Like riding a bicycle, you'll have that skill forever. Head over to muscleintelligence.com. You can also apply for a new coaching program, which is launching very, very soon. You'll see some links there to check that out. I tried to keep the site as simple as possible, and we'll be adding weekly content there for you guys as far as videos and articles from not only me, but my coaches and our favorite Muscle Intelligence Podcast guests. So much gratitude for you guys. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing this mission with me. And I'm hoping that we're doing everything we can to bring you all the information you need to answer all of the questions to live your greatest life in a body you love. Have a great day. 
Thank you so much for tuning in to Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.